Good evening. On behalf of the uh, Committee on Public Lectures, I'd like to welcome everyone to uh, tonight's Stafford Leader uh, Lecture. Initially known as the Stafford Little Lectureship on Public Affairs, this series was endowed in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by Henry Stafford Little of the class of 1844. Grover Cleveland, ex-president of the United States, was the first Stafford Little lecturer until his death in 1908. Other lecturers in this series include President Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Arnold Schoenberg, and Golda Meir. Tonight's lecturer will be introduced by Professor Neta Bakal, who chairs the University Council on Science and Technology and is a member of the faculty of the Department of Astrophysical Sciences, where she specializes in observational cosmology and the large-scale structure of the universe. Professor Bakal. Thank you very much, Sergio. Well, I'm delighted to be able to introduce to you today uh, the Stafford Little Lecturer tonight, uh, Dr. Vera Rubin. And my pleasure in doing this introduction is manifold. And let me give you just a few of the reasons why I'm so pleased to do it tonight. First of all, Vera Rubin is one of the eminent astronomers of our time. She is most famous, as many of you know, for her work on the studies, observational studies, of the motions of stars in galaxies, which revealed for about over 30 years ago now the amazing existence of dark matter in the outskirts of galaxies and in the universe. Galaxies are now believed surrounded by huge dark halo of dark matter, and that observation has changed the way we see the universe today and in the future. For nearly 50 years, Vera's work on the motions in galaxies, the dynamics of galaxies, the structure of galaxies, has led the field of our understanding of these systems. Her surprising results revealed many different things, including schizophrenic galaxies, galaxies where you may hear today, you see stars going this way and the other way in different directions, totally unexpected results. She was the first to show motions on large scales in the universe, galaxies moving at reasonably large speeds, unexpected, which is now confirmed by many other observations. Those results have placed our view on the universe in a different way that we looked at it 50 years ago and 30 years ago and 20 years ago. Second reason that I'm very pleased to 
welcome Vera here tonight. Is Vera's approach to science. She is passionate about science. She loves science. She has a joyful curiosity and sheer fun in trying to understand how our universe works. If you go to her office, like I have done many times, she will be delighted to pull out immediately from her files the most recent data that she has, the most recent spectra she observed of some galaxies, the most recent sky globe that she bought, and just show, show you with just tremendous joy the beautiful data that she has, and she will just look at it and say, see how beautiful it is. See what it's telling us. Isn't it amazing? And you look at her, and she glows with the excitement of the science, just like a kid in a toy store, even more so. And that is the fun of doing science. That's something that all of us should really enjoy what we are doing the way Vera enjoys the work that she does. Vera is undeterred by unconventional ideas, by obstacles, by prejudice. She was the first woman astronomer in 1965 that was permitted to observe at the Palomar Observatory, the big telescope of the time. One of the reasons or excuses that women were not given to observe at the telescope and I must tell you that funny story, is that there was only one bathroom there, and that bathroom said men. Vera, when she went for her observations at the telescope, did what Vera can do. She took a piece of paper, cut out a little silhouette of a little person, you know, like the signs you see on bathroom doors, put a little skirt on it, you know, those little skirts that you see when it shows men or women, and just stuck it on the door. And that solved the problem. Well, no more problem. Now women can observe on the big telescopes. The third, and I can go on and on, but I'd like to leave some time for Vera to talk tonight. But I could easily go on for the full hour to talk about Vera. But let me say the third reason why I'm so pleased, and the last one, is Vera's unending effort to mentor, to support, to encourage young and not so young astronomers, both men and women. She's been an inspiring model to many of us in the field. Always positive, always enthusiastic, always encouraging, always kind and down to earth. Vera has been a staff member at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism at the Carnegie Institute of Washington since 1965 and a senior fellow there since 2001. She has been recognized by numerous awards, including the National Medal of Science, which she received from President Clinton, the Gruber Cosmology Award, the Bruce Medal of the uh, Astronomical Society of the Pacific, and several honorary degrees, and many more. Vera has a nice connection to Princeton. One of her sons, Alan Rubin, is uh, on the faculty here in uh, geosciences, 
And another uh, son, Carl, was in a, is an alumnus of Princeton University, finished in mathematics here. And I'd just like to end with a very small but illustrative story that I once heard from Alan. And Alan, I hope you don't mind me telling that story. You told it in public, and I hope neither Alan nor Vera will mind me telling that story. When Alan, Vera's son, Vera and Bob's son, was a young, I think, postdoc, uh, he started his postdoc at, at, at another institution, and his advisor welcomed him and introduced him to somebody else there, and he said, this is Alan Rubin. He is a geophysicist. He will work here. He is the son of Vera Rubin, the one who discovered dark matter in the universe. Alan turned to him and said, no, she did not. The advisor turned back to Alan and said, what do you mean? Of course she did. She discovered dark matter. And Alan turned back to him and said, no, she did not. She is my mother. <laughs> I'm delighted to welcome the mother and the astronomer, Vera Rubin. Thank you, Netta. Can you hear me? Yes? No. I have a, I have a mic here. Now can you hear me? Okay, fine. What do I have to do? Now can you hear me? Okay. Well, thank you very much, Netta. Uh, thank you for all involved for inviting me to come and give the Stafford little lecture. When the invitation came, I went to the web to see what I could find, and I learned that the very last lecturer in 2002 was a revered professor of um, architecture, and his name was uh, Michael Graves, and he gave a talk called Telling Stories. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, I could, I could do that. I could tell a story. And so I decided I would tell a story about what we know about the universe. It's not the story that anyone would have told 25 years ago, and it surely is not the story that will be told 25 years from now. But this is, in 40 or 50 minutes, the history of the universe and how we think it got that way. I'm not sure whether you can see stars in Princeton anymore or whether you've seen the Milky Way, but the question of what the Milky Way was was one of the great puzzles to uh, all old civilizations. That problem was solved in 1610 by Galileo. But with very few exceptions, most of what we've learned, we've learned in the last 100 years. And I think that progress in understanding the universe is certainly one of the great intellectual achievements of the 20th century. So we learned that we live in a galaxy, that all the stars you see at night belong to our galaxy, all gravitationally bound, 
orbiting about a distant center. We've learned that the universe is filled with other galaxies. We think the universe started at a very hot, dense, I won't say point, but region, which has been expanding and cooling ever since. And we think that most of the matter in the universe is dark, and most of the energy in the universe is dark. So these are the things we're going to talk about. Could I have the first slide? Can I do this? This is Galileo from a children's book, standing in the Florence Tower, uh, looking at perhaps it's Venus. He discovered the uh, phases of Venus. Uh, he looked at the Milky Way. I'm fond of saying that Galileo uh, advanced astronomy when he took a cardboard, a cardboard tube, put a small lens at one end and a large brain at the other. Because what Galileo did was to see things and understand what he saw. And he wrote that he now knows what the Milky Way is. It is just a congeries of stars clumped together in clusters. No, next. <laughs> um, William Herschel and his sister Carolyn mapped the stars by counting their numbers in different directions. And so this is the first primitive picture of our Milky Way. This is the dark lane in the north. And the sun is located in a flattened disk. We're in a disk spiral galaxy. And so when you look through the disk, you see all the stars along your line of sight on the sky, on the band that make the Milky Way. The next. This is a picture of the southern Milky Way. If you really want to see a bright Milky Way, you should go to the southern hemisphere because the center of the galaxy is somewhere around here. This is a picture taken with conventional film. We can't see all the way to the center of the galaxy because there's dust. One of the characteristics of a galaxy is that um, gravity is really the only significant force, and it's the gravity that causes the stars to orbit the center, and it's gravity that retains the dust and the gas from which future generations of stars will be born. This is Halley's Comet, which is, of course, a very nearby uh, solar system object, which just happened to spend four or five days crossing the Milky Way on, one, on its last appearance. Next. This is the Milky Way again, another picture. And this is a picture of a galaxy we see with our telescopes if we look out of the principal plane. The stars you see here are all foreground stars in our galaxy. And here's a, here's a, a galaxy seen edge on, the dust lane, the central bright disk. And it's the similarity of this picture to this that makes us think we understand what we're looking at. Next. This is a picture that was taken by the Cosmic Background Explorer, which was sent up about a decade ago, a collaborative effort. Could you please focus that? Thank you. Um, a collaborative effort between 
uh, Goddard and Princeton, uh, spearheaded in large measure by Dave Wilkinson. This is a picture of our galaxy taken with a camera which was sensitive to the infrared. Uh, this is the central bulge. Uh, this is the edge-on disk. We're seeing about 90 degrees in each direction. The orange are the, is, are the dust lanes and the continuum radiation in the infrared from the faint stars. I like this picture very much. I think it's the picture that should uh, hang in every schoolroom because I think uh, just as we know what the Earth is like, uh, we should understand what our galaxy is like. Next. Thank you. Um, this is a galaxy seen head on, and we think our own galaxy is very much like this. We know that there is a black hole at the center of our galaxy. And this is the only black hole in the entire universe that we really know about. We know it because astronomers have mapped the orbits of stars very, very close, and the, and the orbits are so close that we can uh, derive the mass interior to it. And it's uh, a, couple time, a couple million solar masses. This is a spiral galaxy. The stars are all orbiting in the sense that the arms trail, so the orbits go in this direction. If this were our own galaxy, our, gal our sun would be located somewhere uh, about halfway out near the inner edge of a spiral arm. We orbit with a speed of half a million miles an hour, so the hour you sit here, we will have moved half a million miles. Everything around us is going with the same speed, so we don't notice it. It takes us 200 billion years to go once around the galaxy. No, I'm wrong, 200 million. No, just a minute. Two billion, two billion. 200 million, thank you, Donald. <laughs> and so we've gone around about 20 times. I was going to do the division to find out what the real number is. So in, in, galactic, in galactic years, our galaxy is about 20 or so galactic years old. Um, well, I could tell you lots more about galaxies, but I think we better go on. The, one of the important things we have learned is that just as stars are born and evolve and die, galaxies are formed and they, they evolve, they grow. Uh, large galaxies uh, capture, cannibalize all the small bits and pieces in their uh, region of the universe and grow at the expense of these much smaller things. The next, please. This is the Horsehead Nebula, which may be familiar to many of you. Uh, this is one of the close regions to us in which stars are forming. Uh, this is a dark cloud. You notice that there aren't many stars here. There are lots of stars here, because here we can see more deeply into the galaxy, while here uh, the dark clouds hide from our view the region in which stars are being formed. This is a, a dense molecular cloud. Uh, stars form. It takes two things to form a star. It takes gas and it takes something to 
compress the gas to a high enough density so it will gravitationally start attracting more particles to it, and the central temperature will get higher and higher. And ultimately, the star will start fusing uh, atoms of hydrogen into heavier elements. What we're seeing here are breaks in the clouds and light from the newborn stars is coming through. It's very hard, certainly in, in the optical wavelengths, to see stars being born because they're really shrouded by these denser molecular clouds. Next, please. Uh, this is a famous uh, picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. These are, this, uh, these are regions, again, in which stars are newly forming, most of, mostly in these little, uh, little towers. Next. Star formation is a very messy process, and most uh, stars, as they form, will be surrounded by a debris disk, a, a thin disk orbiting the central protostar, which, which will become a star or a sun-like object. And it's the, from the debris disk that the planets will be formed around each star. We now know about 100 stars, all very, very close to us, relatively close to us, uh, that have planets. We've detected them just by the motion of the central star as the planets orbit. Uh, planets form by having the particulate matter in the disk just uh, collide and grow and uh, theoretical simulations, numerical simulations, show that a typical debris disk will end up forming half a dozen or so planets. It won't form one, and it won't form 20. And here are some of the debris disks, which this is an HST, Hubble Space Telescope image, and for the first time, these disks around forming stars have been imaged. The next slide. Uh, in our own solar system, there are four inner planets, and we call them terrestrial planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And then there are the gas giants. And you may remember that in 1944, a comet uh, uh, Shoemaker-Levy bashed into Jupiter, and it made uh, planetary astronomers realize that the outer heavy planets play an important role in uh, the survival of, of human life on, on the Earth, because by their increased gravity, they deflect some of the large incoming meteors that might otherwise have struck the Earth. It's a very complicated interplay. Uh, John Muir, the American naturalist, said in 1915 in his book, My First Summer in the Sierra, he wrote that when you try to pick out anything by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And I think that's a, a good understanding of the interplay and the complexity between planets, meteorites, galaxies, life. Uh, next, please. This is a drawing that I only put up uh, to give you some approximate idea. This, this is time going this way. This is showing the evolution of a star. This is a, such a low mass 
star that it never really becomes a star. This is a brown dwarf. It never gets hot enough in its central temperature to initiate uh, a nuclear, uh, making, making heavier and heavier elements. Here is a one solar mass. So this is a, this is a star like the sun. For many, many years, many, many uh, millions of years, many, many billions of years, the star will be acting as an energy factory. It will start, transform the hydrogen into heavier elements until ultimately it will have made all the elements up to iron. After, and the, the, the point of doing this is that as it transforms four hydrogen atoms into one helium atom through rather more complicated processes, there's a little bit of energy left over, and that's the energy that goes into uh, the radiation. By the time it has produced all the elements up to iron, it can no longer continue making heavier elements because in so doing, it must expend energy. And then a kind of energy catastrophe strikes. In the case of suns that are about the, the same mass as the sun, they'll turn into a white dwarf. For much more massive stars, <coughs> excuse me, they'll turn into a neutron star. And for the most massive stars of all, will turn into a black hole. Some, some event, some catastrophe will take place at these points. The next, um, one of the catastrophes that can take place is that a star becomes a planetary nebula. It sheds its outer envelopes. These have nothing to do with planets. These are stars. They were called planetary be, uh, by the early telescope observers who thought their colors resembled the colors of planets. Very often they're bilobed things. Next, please. But depending upon your viewing angle, this is also a planetary nebula. These are really spectacular uh, images from the Hubble Space Telescope showing all the fine detail. The colors actually um, are, uh, define what the elements are that the, the object is throwing into the interstellar medium. And the net effect is that during its lifetime, the, the star has produced all of these heavier elements which become part of the interstellar medium and part of the uh, chemicals which will go into forming the next generation of stars. Next. Another way uh, a star can end its life is by coming a, becoming a supernova, explosively shedding each of its, all of its outer envelope. And in so doing, shock waves are produced which go out into the intervening area. This is a Hubble uh, telescope view of a, of a galaxy I was actually studying. And um, the, the galaxy is really much larger, but these are the bright parts. And so all the, all the gaseous material, which you can't see around this, will be shocked by the, by the uh, shock from the, from the supernova and may, in fact, initiate new formation of stars. Next. This is, a, this is a tree of a family tree that actually one of the uh, biologists in my lab showed. This is the conventional diagram showing various families of animals. And although you probably can't read it down here, it says stardust. And so if you want to make, uh, if you want to make all of the living organisms on Earth, 
uh, you must first have the uh, chemical elements necessary for life produced in the interior of some star. All of the uh, atoms in our bodies and all the atoms that make up this room have actually come from the Earth, which in, in turn came from the uh, debris disk around the forming sun. Uh, and, the, and those elements all came from, a, from stars in the neighborhood that had already finished their life and somehow uh, spread their elements back through the, the cosmos. Next. This is, a, this is a plot. Almost everything else I had shown was a photograph. So here's our Milky Way. And I wanted to show you these two satellites of our own galaxy. These, this is the Large and Small Magellanic Cloud. In a galaxy, stars relative to their diameters are very, very far apart. You could place um, millions, tens of millions of stars between our sun and the next nearest star. So that relative to their diameters, they're very, very far apart. There's virtually no gravitational interaction between the stars because of the great separation. But that's not true of galaxies. Virtually every galaxy has many galaxies within a few uh, diameters. And the ga galaxies grow by assimilating these uh, uh, satellites. The, the Magellanic Clouds have orbits which take them pretty much over the pole. And uh, in each passage through the, through the disk of our galaxy, it really is the gas in the Magellanic Clouds and the gas in our galaxy that interact. The stars go through relatively undisturbed due to their great distances. The next slide shows a 21 centimeter. This is neutral hydrogen, a moving universe. <laughs> okay. Uh, can that be focused? This is the large Magellanic cloud, small Magellanic cloud. This is a tidal tail. Uh, Donald Lyndon Bell, who's sitting on the second row, has made uh, many studies related to this, pointing out that there are other dwarf galaxies in in this great circle defined by this. And we, we used to think that these were the two closest uh, satellite galaxies to our own, but we now know several others. And in fact, we know several uh, small galaxies that are in the process of being uh, disrupted right now. And we can trace stars around uh, the sky at great distances from us, but which are parts of the satellite galaxies that are being torn apart by their uh, by their passages close enough. And so our galaxy is growing. Next. This is, I'm sorry that the focus is having a problem. This is the large Magellanic cloud. It has a very old population, but all of these gaseous regions are where stars are actively being formed, actively being formed probably due to the shocks from a passage through our own Milky Way. Next slide. This is the Andromeda galaxy, the largest galaxy to us. Uh, it too has sub satellite galaxies. Everyone's certainly aware, I think, that the universe is expanding, that in general galaxies are moving apart. 
But our galaxy and Andromeda are approaching each other for the first time in the history of the universe. Um, there are regions in the universe where the local gravity overcomes the uh, expansion. The solar system is not expanding. The, our galaxy is not expanding. We think that our galaxy and Andromeda early in the universe were actually moving away from each other. But as they grew, their mass, as they acquired more and more mass, their uh, mutual gravitational attraction ultimately overcame the expansion of the universe, and they're now approaching each other for the first time. This was one of the early evidences that they may have more mass than what we thought by just looking at their light. And in about two billion years, there will either be a near miss or a hit. We really don't know what the transverse motions are. We only know the motion along the line of sight. Next slide. Um, this, is the this is the earliest known picture of an external galaxy. This is the Andromeda galaxy from a Persian print and the fish is about to uh, swallow the galaxy. Next. This is a galaxy. This is one of the little galaxies in the group of galaxies which Andromeda and our galaxy belong to. Astronomers call it the local group. It was named probably 70 years ago before people gave attractive names to things. And so it's just the local group. But you can see there's no dense central concentration. So the, the, the mutual gravity of all the stars in here is quite small. This is nothing like the spiral disks that we see in Andromeda or in our own galaxy. These are regions of star formation. But something like this is gravitationally very fragile. Next. This is the Virgo cluster. Um, which is the nearest large cluster to us. Um, astronomers often quite sloppily say that we're falling to the Virgo cluster. In fact, we're expanding from the Virgo cluster. Our local group of galaxies is expanding, but we're expanding at a velocity smaller than the general expansion of the universe because we we feel the gravity of this large cluster. This is just the center of perhaps a 1,000 galaxies. Most of the galaxies I've been talking about are uh, disk spirals, but uh, clusters of galaxies have many spheroidal galaxies. We believe these are due to the merger of disk galaxies. You can see here's a lump in this galaxy. Uh, this galaxy is probably in the process of swallowing a small galaxy. You may be able to see some uh, tails that have been gravitationally pulled out. These two galaxies are mutually interacting and will probably, uh, the probabilities are that they may merge. Uh, the study of uh, clusters of galaxies has been important to the uh, discovery and our knowledge of the dark matter in the universe. Many minutes, about 70 years ago, Fritz Wicke pointed out that from velocities of only seven galaxies, he knew the velocities of seven galaxies in the coma cluster, and he pointed out that the, the mutual velocities were so different that the cluster ought to be disbanding, and he postulated that there was uh, dark matter in the cluster 
and it was the dark matter that was holding it together. No one really knew what to make of that observation, um, and it was really ignored for about 70 years. Uh, much of Nedabakal's early work involved clusters of galaxies, and I think she understood very early the important role that they played in, in the structure of the universe. Next. <laughs> You're seeing lots of donut stars. Um, the largest scale structure, and we now can go out much further, is, is a kind of um, structure that has voids surrounded by galaxies. This is a plot of uh, a slice of the universe. The observer is standing here, and the observations go out in a kind of pie shape or a pizza, pizza a slice of pizza shape uh, into, the, into the universe. We don't know distances well, but to a zeroth order approximation, the velocity of each galaxy is a good indication of how far away it is. And so this is a plot of velocities in this direction versus position. And uh, this was a front page of the Science Times in 1991, and the headline said, New Surveys of the Universe Confound Theorists. And when I showed this in a, in a science lecture in Durham, uh, England, I said, well, that didn't bother me because I was an observer, not a theorist. And a very bright theorist in the audience said, yeah, but look at this. And this is another headline which says, the brain may seize what I cannot. So although we have much deeper surveys, I still prefer to show this one. Next. And here's a New Yorker cartoon. I see here that the universe is now thought to be full of inexplicably dense clumps. Uh, next. So here's a sketch. Here's, here's a summary of the whole, whole universe so far. Solar system, it takes eight minutes for sunlight, for light to travel from the sun to us. Um, can you focus, please? Uh, the galaxy, and we're somewhere here, it takes uh, 30,000 years for light to travel from the center of the galaxy to us. Uh, 30,000 years ago, humans were uh, arranging themselves into tribes. It takes 3 million years for light to cross the local group. Uh, which was very early in, in life on the Earth. It takes about uh, 30 million years for light to grow across the Virgo cluster. Uh, the large-scale structure is this lumpy, uh, lace-like thing. And somewhere over on a wall over here, or even further away, would be um, the photons that left the, uh, the microwave photons that left shortly after the Big Bang. And one of the pressing problems in astronomy has been to understand how this kind of structure arose from an initial universe that was very smooth. 
Next slide, please. I want to tell you a little bit about the work I do and then sort of conclude with the, the, the latest things we know about the universe. This is Kitt Peak National Observatory um, in southern Arizona, which has a four-meter telescope. The next slide is a view from uh, of the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, which now has two 6.5-meter uh, telescopes. This is the kind of photograph that no observatory director wants you to see because it's never supposed to be cloudy in observatories. But sometimes it is, and then the sky is very pretty, but that doesn't make up for losing a night at the telescope. The next slide. Um, this is Newton. In 1686, uh, setting forth what he knew about motions in the solar system, or what others had measured already. Next slide, please. And here is, uh, let's see, up here are the times it takes in days for Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn to orbit. And here are their distances from the sun in units of the Earth being 100,000. And if you put these numbers into your computer and plot them, next slide, you get, a, you get a plot that looks like this. Mercury is going at 40-some uh, uh, kilometers per second, and Pluto's going at some four. Pluto is 100 times as far from the sun as Mercury. If you are responding, as these planets are, to the gravitational force that's all inside of your orbits, then uh, your velocities go down as the square root of the, uh, of the distance. And we had expected that in, in uh, galaxies we would see the same kind of thing. Galaxies have a very bright center, but fairly far out. You should be at a region where most of the mass is interior to you, and the velocity should start falling off. Um, I had been interested in outsides of galaxies uh, virtually all of my career, and it seemed like a good thing to study uh, because we knew so little about it, and also because everybody else was studying centers of galaxies, and that made it uh, more interesting and really uh, more comfortable for me in many ways. The next slide. And so I went out and measured velocities. Um, Andromeda is such a big galaxy that I had to do it uh, region by region by region, and I couldn't find any bright regions beyond about here. And, and there was this funny business at the center, which I'm still not sure we understand. But then it was pretty flat, and so that was published in 1970, and then in 75, the radio astronomers uh, added more points further out because they could find the, some neutral hydrogen. That's not the dark matter that's acting as, because it's so very, there's so very, very little of it, uh, but they could find enough to measure velocities, and that's really pretty straight. And what we expected, of course, was that they would fall down, and by the time you got past where virtually all of the light was, the velocities would just get slower and slower. And, that's, and we never saw that. Next slide. So here's just a schematic. Uh, this is what we expected. 
This is what we found in virtually every case, hundreds of galaxies ultimately. And so this is the contribution from the dark matter. And it makes more and more difference the further out you go. Uh, that is, we, we have to understand what it is that's accelerating the stars to such a high velocity. And because it's something we don't see, we have to conclude that it is uh, matter that does not radiate at any wavelength. And it's only from it, but, but which does gravitationally accelerate the stars that we can see. So one of the evidences for dark matter are the very flat rotation curves. Next slide. Let me show you what I really do when I go to a telescope. I pick a galaxy which is slightly inclined to the line of sight. And in this case, this part of the, these stars are orbiting toward, toward that side. These stars are orbiting this way. Um, I take a spectrograph, which is an instrument that spreads light out into its component wavelengths that has a, a, a long slip. So I need a specialized instrument. And so I get a velocity of every point along that line. And this is a piece of what I got. This is an old slide. These were spectra that were taken on photographic plates, uh, like a film that you would use in a camera, except that it's uh, adhered to a glass plate because I have to measure positions to very, very high accuracy. And I see this, is, this line comes from all the light in the nucleus of the galaxy. This is the hydrogen alpha line from hydrogen gas, which surrounds the bright, hot stars. This part is going away. If you look very closely, this is a very early slide. Um, this is the red direction on the spectrum. Light that is shifted toward the red will have the hydrogen line shifted toward the top, and light that's shifted to the blue because these are coming toward us will have the light, the line shifted to downward. So I hope you can see that that's a little bit higher than this. Uh, this, this is known as the Doppler shift. This is the same kind of effect that makes a, a, um, an ambulance siren appear to change pitch as it goes away and comes toward you. Next slide. I wanted to show you the whole slide because um, I thought you might find it interesting. I go observing on nights that are called dark, which means there's no moon because the object I'm looking at is radiating really quite weakly. Here's the hydrogen line here. This is, this is the center of the galaxy. So with respect to the center, this is blue shifted and this is red shifted. All of these lines you see crossing the spectrum are night sky lines. They're lines from OH. I see John Bacall on the first row. About uh, 35 years ago, John, before I had ever met him, picked up the phone and said, I'm studying quasi-stellar objects, and I think I should know what astronomers do when they find, when they go observing. So can I come watch you observe? And he did. So these, these lines are OH lines. And so this night sky, which you might think is dark, is actually radiating just at almost the intensity of the objects. This is, this is H alpha. This is a forbidden sulfur. This is another, uh, excuse me, forbidden nitrogen, ionized nitrogen. This is forbidden sulfur. 
There's one exception. This line here is not OH. This is the hydrogen line in our Earth's atmosphere, which is essentially at rest with respect to the Earth. And this is the hydrogen line in the galaxy. And the hydrogen line in the galaxy is displaced toward the red. And the measure from here to here tells us how fast that galaxy is moving. And so I would come back and, and in, in my, put this plate under a microscope and actually measure uh, to, to very small fractions of, uh, measure to microns, um, measure the displacement of this line with respect to that line, with respect to the galaxy center. So with respect to the center of the galaxy, one half is coming toward us, one half is going away, and then we would flip one on top of the other to make the, uh, to increase the accuracy of the measurements. And the next slide is just a composite of here are five galaxies, here are their spectra, here are the measurements, and in every case, the rotation curve is not falling. Uh, this is a galaxy that is perhaps three times as large as the, our own galaxy, and we nowhere see a Keplerian fall. And that's the evidence that there must be dark matter in a massive halo surrounding the galaxy and extending well beyond the galaxy. And ultimately, we came to the conclusion that uh, perhaps uh, 80 90% of the matter in the universe was dark. What we're seeing when we look at the bright stars and galaxies and comets, everything you think of as astronomical objects, they make up of the order of 10 or 15% of the matter in the universe. So it's very hard if you're an optical astronomer to study something that you can't see. Next slide. Um, so that was in the 70s. In the 80s and early 90s, we learned that there is another manifestation of dark matter, and this was predicted by Einstein uh, when he said that light would bend in going around a massive object, and this was proved in 1919 when the um, eclipse of the sun showed that the stars in the vicinity of the sun looked different when the sun was in eclipse and therefore the mass of the sun was distorting their, their positions. What you're seeing here is a cluster of galaxies. All of the fuzzy large things you see are a, a galaxy in the foreground and behind that galaxy is probably another cluster of galaxies and the light from the galaxies behind the one you can see well is distorted into all of these rings and arcs. And each one, of the, each one of the resolution elements here is just as bright as the original object would have been. So this is a telescope. This is a telescope that nature gives to us if you have a massive, if you have a large mass with galaxies behind it. So all of these astronomers have actually learned how to take these distorted images and turn them back into galaxies. And so we may ultimately, uh, this, is, this is a telescope that nature has given us. 
and the most distant things we may ever see, we may see from their gravitational lenses caused by foreground galaxies. And this uh, is very clear evidence that Zwicky was correct when he said that clusters of galaxies contain large, uh, matter, large amounts of dark matter. We now think that part of that is due to the galaxies which fall into the cluster, uh, which we will do if, if our galaxy uh, survives long enough. And as they, when they fall in, they carry their uh, dark, massive halos with them. Next. Uh, this is a slide I made about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, for a meeting in Princeton. And uh, these are the questions we knew enough to ask. Uh, does it exist? And even then, the answer was yes if you believe that Newton's laws are the appropriate uh, description of what gravity is doing. Uh, the fact that we have based the analysis on Newton's laws has caused some, uh, some astronomers to question whether Newton's laws hold for distances as large as galaxies, and we really don't know the answer to that. Uh, at the present time, I think everyone prefers to hope that Newton's laws hold and that we will learn what the dark matter is. I think if we wait uh, another 30 years, which is about what it's been since we took this seriously, um, then we'll have to consider whether there are reasons to think that we have to uh, look for another explanation. We know pretty much where it is. It clumps around galaxies. It's more extended than galaxies. Um, we even know something about how much is there. And the answer is, as I said, um, most of the matter in the universe is dark. Uh, 80, 85% is dark. Only a small fraction is radiating. Um, we do not know what it is. We know that very small fractions of it may be neutrinos. A uh, very small fraction may be black holes. Uh, the, the general belief at present, astronomers have ruled out lots of things. We've looked for little dark uh, stars. We've looked for uh, all kinds of uh, hidden ways in which matter could exist in the universe. And we've been able to rule them out by looking at different wavelengths, by looking for eclipses if a dark object moved in front of a bright object. And it's clear it's not that kind of thing. Most people, most astronomers, most physicists believe that it's probably some of the particles which are permitted by the standard physics model, but which have never been detected. And one of the reasons physicists build larger and larger accelerators is that they hope they can produce in their laboratory what nature has produced in the universe. The question I didn't know enough to ask here was, um, when did it arise in the universe? And that's a question that we've answered pretty well. Uh, this, the question of how structure arose is best answered by thinking that dark matter was a very early constituent of the universe. And that small clumps of black, black 
dark matter must have existed, and they, they were the gravitational wells into which the luminous matter ultimately fell to see the, to see the uh, large-scale structures that we see today. The next slide. Uh, lots of things are invisible, but we don't know how many because we can't see them. That's not true because we think we do know right now about how many there are because of their gravitational attraction. Ne next slide, please. This is the most uh, recent surprise. Um, I haven't calculated how often astronomers are surprised, but in the last 30 or 40 years, it's pretty often. And just as we were trying to come to grips with the dark matter, astronomers that were studying supernova at very large distances uh, discovered that those at the, about the edges, now they, they have some up to about a redshift of 1.7. Uh, astronomers use strange units. Uh, but it looks like the best fit to the data available is for a universe in which uh, there, there is about 25% matter and about 75% dark energy, which it's being called, and the sum is one so that we live in a flat universe. Um, we, we know that the universe can be uh, could be curved like a sphere, it could be curved like a saddle, or it could be flat. And this sum being one implies that it's flat. There are other reasons why we think we understand the geometry of the universe. And uh, the recent observations by the uh, WMAP, the Wilkinson uh, satellite that's been flying and still flying has confirmed a universe in which uh, matter is only a small amount. This is an energy whose, uh, uh, whose exact uh, characteristics have not yet been uh, carefully, carefully is the wrong word, accurately defined because there are several open subjects, and that's surely uh, where much of the studies in the next few years are going to be, to define the, the strange energy that seems to be making the expansion of the universe accelerate. Um, observations generally, uh, maybe this is a prejudice statement of an observer, but observations generally drive the theory. There, there were always questions about whether the expansion of the universe was slowing down so that the universe would ultimately stop expanding and start contracting back to a small region or whether it would expand forever. And now it looks, in fact, uh, because the universe is, is flat, it will expand forever. And in fact, it looks like the region we're just getting to observe is accelerating. The next slide. Well, this is the last slide. This is what you, this is, the, this is the story we tell about the universe. That there was a big bang which produced radiation, photons, which um, 
the universe started cooling and expanding. There was a very sudden, very rapid inflation very early, so the universe grew very big. Uh, the, the photons, which um, came from this early uh, expansion, from this early event, uh, have been traveling through the universe for the history of time. And last year, some of those photons came to, a, came to a galaxy and came to a star and came to an orbiting satellite, which was orbiting the Earth. And this is the W map, which was a joint project of Princeton and Goddard Space Flight Center. And these photons, which were once perhaps at uh, a temperature of about 10 to the 15th, are now at a temperature of 2.75. They're icy cold. Um, the first stars formed after an era which we call the Dark Ages because there was no light. The temperature from the photons uh, had cooled enough so the light was shifted to the infrared and atoms were, were finally produced and stars started to be formed here. So the first radiation that came other than the radiation from the Big Bang itself came here from the first stars. And those stars um, were probably pretty massive. They, um, their evolution carried, went pretty quickly, quickly being hundreds of thousands of years. And they produced heavier and heavier elements. Astronomers have not yet seen all the way back to the first stars. We think that the next generation space telescope will be able to do so. But I've been an astronomer long enough to know that um, astronomers have often thought they saw the edge of the universe. And then bigger telescopes told them that they hadn't. And that certainly has happened several times in my lifetime. So I think we have a long way to go. But ultimately, we'll discover the first generation of stars. And um, I think in the process of doing that, we'll learn lots of things that we don't yet know enough to even ask questions about. So I think we've learned a lot. I think that um, we can tell this story, and uh, it's, uh, it's correct in many, uh, many of its ideas, and it's probably wrong in some of its ideas. And uh, the next 25 years, we'll be trying to look at some of the possibilities that still match the observations we know. Uh, there are questions as to whether we really live in an infinite universe or whether, in fact, it may be a small universe. And we're seeing light uh, from galaxies which have evolved during the history of the universe. And we may be seeing them in different positions. And there are even ways of uh, attempting to answer stories like that. So that's the story I wanted to tell you. Thank you very much. We have time for a few questions. One here. There, there is a there is a microphone. Uh,
you just mentioned that you thought it might be found wrong in some of its parts. Would you like to speculate on which parts? Well, it is it's possible to actually do a little more than speculate because given the given the observations that we know and the models that we have, we know in part where they don't match. And um, one of them has to do with whether the universe is infinite or finite. whether, one of the others, of course, is whether there really is dark matter or we have to change the laws of physics. Uh, I try to be careful in, in the words I used in describing the Big Bang. We really don't know the physics of that at all. And uh, you can't feel satisfied with a theory that starts in, with who, whose origin we, we cannot really define better than that. So, and then I would say that we really don't know what gravity is. There are times when I think it would be nice if we would solve the dark matter and the dark energy problem at the same time that we understood gravity a little better. So, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but <laughs> but maybe that's enough. I don't mean to discourage people from believing most of what we said because, uh, but um, 10 years ago, uh, well, maybe 10 years ago, there are, I mentioned, I said, I think in passing that uh, much of astronomy was was driven by observations and much of cosmology, and it is, but there are always large, there are always very smart theorists around, and there are ideas such as the presence of dark matter in galaxies to stabilize disks. And um, I think that before the accelerating universe was devised, there were smart theorists who talked about models like that for reasons. So uh, those are the questions. The the answer to your question is really, that's the kind of question we don't yet know enough to ask. I think there will be very major surprises. I don't think we've discovered all the surprises in the universe. What what role have black holes played in the formation of galaxies? Well, I would ask the question the other way. What role have galaxies played in the formation of black holes? Because the black holes we... Astronomers talk about massive black holes and uh, black holes of kind of stellar mass, much smaller. In the centers of galaxies, uh, astronomers have believed for quite a while that there were probably relatively massive black holes in the center of every galaxy, every large spiral galaxy. So I'm not sure I can answer the question better than that. It's just part of the evolution of a galaxy. Well, has it been determined that the larger the black hole, the larger the galaxy? That yes, there is there is there, there is a good correlation, but that would also take place if uh, the galaxy were feeding the black hole, and so 
I, I don't think that means that galaxies formed around massive black holes. I think it's much more likely that uh, some phenomenon, perhaps even merging black holes, made a very massive black hole at the center, which in turn attracts matter to it. Some galaxies have very active nuclei. Our galaxy does not have a very active nucleus. And astronomers call that uh, feeding the monster. If you have lots of gas near the central black hole, then it will uh, gravitationally fall out. You'll see very, very exciting things. Uh, there are plans to fly satellites, and there are plans, there are now building on Earth uh, detectors to look for gravitational radiation, which would be, uh, which would teach us much more about black holes. There's a question over there. Um, you were talking about like the black holes in the evolution of galaxies. Um, how would quasars play in with that? How do quasars are are uh, perceived to be very exceedingly bright nuclei, and so they are surely related to black holes. In many cases, they are overluminous for uh, for their galaxy, and we don't even see the galaxy; we just see the the quasar. For many years, astronomers didn't know what they were at all. And now with uh, better and better photographic, or uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, you can now often uh, bring out the, the uh, galaxy surrounding a black hole. So they're part of this phenomenon of exceedingly bright Lumin luminous galaxy, luminous galaxy nuclei, probably due to the fact that matter is uh, swirling into the black hole. The larger the galaxy, the larger yes. the galaxy. So the only reason that they appear so big is because they're so young. Because like later on, they would be large galaxies, but we're only seeing them when they're about two billion years old, two billion? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Galaxies, uh, galaxies probably formed very, or many galaxies probably formed very early in the universe, if that was the question. And galaxies, merging galaxies, would, would grow even larger. Uh, in, uh, in our uh, region of the universe, galaxy, galaxies nearby are relatively the same age as we are, and they still come in a very large assortment from the, from the very large to the, to the just fragments. And they do continue to grow, and the nuclei probably continue to grow. But what we see is really a function of the, what, what was happening when the light that has reached us now was, was what was happening in the galaxy at that time. Let's see, two more questions uh, on this side. There is one over there. Dong Lin. 
wouldn't be wouldn't dark matter be something like an invisible source of gravity? Would dark matter would dark matter be yes, dark matter is an invisible source of gravity. That's a, that's a very good definition. Uh, we see it by its gravity, but we don't know what the dark matter is. So it has to be gravitationally acting on something that we can see. See, we have a question over here. Microphone is coming. In these calculations, is it assumed that the galaxies, or for that matter the universe, is electrically homogeneous? Because if it were not, there'd be another inverse square force which could perhaps balance. Can you say that again? Yes, if, <laughs> if in the calculations based on Newton's laws, if there were another inverse square law which could uh, countervail, an obvious uh, candidate would be electrical forces. If the charge of the universe is not zero, is inhomogeneous, you can imagine a countervailing inverse square force. Is, are galaxies homogeneous electrically or not? Are what homogeneous? Uh, galaxies. Galaxies. We, we believe that electrical forces are insignificant over large scales in a galaxy. So that's not, that's not a, a, an acceptable explanation for what we're seeing. How about magnetic fields? Uh, equally, the gravitational force is very different from electrical and magnetic forces. The reason gravity is important is because space is so large and it's a weak force, but it exists over very large distances, while electrical and magnetic forces are much stronger, but they don't act over very large regions. And so the, the immensity of space makes gravitational forces the only significant force for large-scale large uh, studies. For, for individual small regions in a galaxy, the magnetic field may be significant. And we know that by looking at polarizations. But they're not, um, they're not equivalent to gravity. Let us thank Dr. Rubin once more. I wasn't sure what the audience was thinking.